My name is Steve Gould. I'm a professional drummer and an amateur thinker. My favorite part of life is learning, which is great because there's so much to learn. That's what this show is for. Thinking out loud, discussing ideas, sharing conversation, listening, growing, and hopefully learning something. The Steve Gould Show. Welcome back to The Steve Gould Show. Thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks for listening to any of the episodes. I really appreciate it. I'm stoked about my guest on this episode, one of my best friends, period, in the history of friends for me. We'll get into that conversation in a little bit, but first I'll start off with the new experiences segment where I share things that I've been going through and learning in recent days and weeks. Okay, so here's where I'm at currently. I I live in LA now full-time. I don't have my apartment in Phoenix anymore. Moved all my stuff here. Misty and I live in Silver Lake, which is a neighborhood just northeast of downtown. And I really like it. There's a lot of walkable spots, coffee shops and restaurants and bodega, whatever we need is close by, which is good because driving around this area is kind of hairy. This is the first time I've ever really lived in a densely populated urban area. I've always been out in the suburbs. Even when I grew up as a kid, the first 10 years of my life, I lived here in Los Angeles area, but it was in Burbank, in the city of Burbank. And at no point then when I was a child or in the suburbs of Minnesota where I lived or even in Phoenix, at no point was there ever an issue finding parking or even just making your way down the street. And here in Silver Lake, wow, that's a constant issue. There's like a garbage truck, blocking all of the traffic, both directions, because both sides of the street are completely lined with parked cars and the street's not wide enough for two cars to go down at the same time. And now there's a garbage truck in the middle and nobody can go anywhere. And everyone just kind of like accepts that (laughs) because I'm realizing that it's a normal part of life in a city like this. And that's cool. I, I am enjoying getting accustomed to it. One experience I'm having regularly is me driving down a road, like I just described, parked cars on either side, and the road is not quite wide enough for two vehicles to drive down going opposite directions. And somebody's coming towards me and I'm heading toward them and we both know that we can't both make it. So there's just kind of an unspoken agreement between us as drivers. One of us pulls to the side into maybe like the opening for someone's driveway or whatever and you let the other person go. And what's interesting to me about this is the first time I experienced it, I really didn't know what to do. I just thought, oh, God, we're trapped. Now we can, now neither of us can go. And the person opposite me who's heading my direction, heading down the street toward me, they pulled to the side. And I thought, oh, that's really nice of them. They're going to let me go. That happened a few other times. Started to get the hang of it. I started doing it for other people, which is funny because at first I just thought everybody was being nice to each other. And it is a nice gesture to be the person who pulls over to let someone else go through. But really it's an agreement that produces efficiency for both of us. The first person to get out of the way allows the other person to go, but then that means they themselves can also go. Like if I'm headed down the road and I pull to the side to let somebody pass me, then I can pull back out and keep heading on my way. 
it's both me being nice and me just quickly getting where I need to be. And in that sense, we are really working together for our own purposes, as opposed to granting right of way to the other person just be, just out of the kindness of our hearts. Which, in my mind, brings up the question of what it means to be truly altruistic, to want something for someone else only. That's a pretty rare thing in human beings, where giving a gift toward another person is specifically just for the other person and I myself don't get anything out of it, that doesn't happen. When I give a gift to someone else, I enjoy the act of giving the gift, which means I'm getting something out of it. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is familiar with the experience of showing up to a birthday party or some other gathering where a gift is maybe expected and you didn't realize it. And now you're afraid of the shame of having not brought a gift. In both instances, if I'm a guy who enjoys giving or if I'm just a person who's trying to avoid the shame of not bringing a gift, there's something going on besides my own generosity in the gift giving, which is to say my kindness toward another person is usually also motivated by something I want for myself. Anyway, that's not my point. My point isn't, is there such a thing as actual altruism? My point is that I'm really impressed with the ability of all of us in this densely populated area to get along with each other and make life happen. Get the trash cans out on the side of the curb on trash day, get them back in your house so they're out of everyone's way. Even like going on walks, uh, you know, a few months ago when the pandemic was more of a presence and everyone making sure that they didn't get in each other's way as they're going on walks or on hikes. And then driving down the road and making sure we're not in each other's way on the road with our vehicles. It's a very conscious community in the sense that everyone is aware of each other and living our own lives in ways that don't negatively impact the others that are living in such close proximity to us. All of these lives really crammed in tight together. We got to figure it out. We got to get along. There's a social contract in place that we all have to abide by if we're all going to succeed. And this is the first time that I've ever really lived in the midst of that. I understand the concept of it. I've been around it. In fact, that's one of the things I found really appealing about Japan. The first time I went to Japan, such a densely populated country. Tokyo is a city, but even just the country itself. Everyone is so aware, so beautifully aware of each other and the way their respective actions will affect one another. I think that kind of corporate mentality, corporate in this sense meaning together, I think that kind of we're all in this together mentality is very beautiful. It even makes me wonder if if that's a possible explanation for what seems to be statistically a very obvious political difference in the viewpoints and the policies advocated by people who live in close proximity to one another versus people who live in rural areas. At least in the United States, a lot of space between you and your neighbor like physical space, I mean, like a lot of acres between my house and the next nearest house almost always produces a politically conservative perspective. Whereas densely populated areas like here in Silver Lake or in New York or downtown Chicago or even suburban Chicago, where everything is quite packed in, almost always produces a liberal or progressive perspective politically. Why is that? I don't know. One potential answer though, especially that as I'm feeling it living in LA right now, one potential answer is the social contract that's necessary 
when people live really close to each other. We have to figure out how to get along. And when there's distance between my neighbors and I, I can maybe easily forget that my neighbors exist. Or at least I don't have to feel what their needs are and I don't have to feel their impact on my needs. I'm open to the idea that rural communities producing right-wing perspectives politically versus high population communities in close proximity producing left-wing perspective. I'm open to that being explained in some other way besides the necessity of the social contract because perhaps there's no real connection between those things. I'm just noticing as a resident of Silver Lake, the experience of driving down a road that only has room for one lane of traffic while there's two lanes happening. I'm not considering the other cars because I'm just super loving as a person. I'm not this elevated, enlightened being that just thinks about others. I'm actually thinking about myself. In order for my commute to succeed, I need to work toward the success of everyone's commutes versus my experiences in suburban areas that didn't require that headspace. And you know what? I remember getting really mad at anybody hindering my progress when I was rolling around these suburbs back in high school, when I was in my 20s in Minnesota, or even just the six years prior to now when I was in Phoenix. I get so frustrated with somebody being in my way. Get out of my way. As opposed to the perspective I'm adopting now, oh, I have to consider others. I have to. I don't want to, but I have to in order for my objective to succeed. Uh, I haven't totally worked out this theory yet, so I'm open to any pushback if you want to weigh in in a discussion on uh, Instagram or social media. Better yet, head over to my Patreon and jump in the conversation there. The question at hand, is there a possible connection between the corporate, we're all in this together headspace and liberal, left-leaning, progressive politics versus demanding just my own rights and the right-wing perspective in politics? I don't mean that to sound dismissive of right-wing perspectives. Anybody listening to this show can tell that I'm not a staunch conservative. But I am trying to figure out why staunch conservatives are that way. And I wonder, I wonder if it's connected to the very real statistic that rural communities, communities without the necessity of this social contract, tend to be right-wing. I need to get a guest on here who actually knows a thing or two about politics and urban development, city planning. Maybe toss that question out to them. Instead, for today's episode, I have my dear friend BJ, a musician, public school administrator, and really sharp thinker and conversationalist. We spend a little time in the interview talking about how we know each other, so I won't get into that now. Instead, we'll just get right into this conversation with one of my best friends in the whole world. BJ Ermitter, I see you're in your apartment in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm in my apartment in Minneapolis, Minnesota, warehouse district, otherwise known as the North Loop for the young hipster crowd. It's a dope spot, man. When when Misty and I met up with you there back in February, I remember really, really appreciating the vibe and your balcony 
like the the view, I guess is what I'm saying. And like like you're what fourth floor, seventh floor, something fourth like floor. that. Yep. What was that restaurant we went to downstairs? We went to the Free House, which is Free House, one of the happening places in the neighborhood. It's so much fun now. So I moved in here August last year, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. Nothing is open, and this is the hottest spot in town this is where everybody wants to live and be and like where all the cool spots are yeah so nothing's been open so it's been really fun just in the last few weeks as stuff has started to open up and be more free and people are everywhere and getting to explore some new spots and man it's a great neighborhood it's super fun here I mean, I'm jealous. I guess, like, I have always known about that area of Minneapolis and played a lot of music down there and, you know, been there to hang or whatever, but never even considered how cool it would be to live there. Man, it's it's so fantastic. Bunkers opens July 11th. The combo comes back on yes. July 11th. And that's, like, across the parking lot, bro. So, like, I'm so excited to just walk over there and hear live music. Like, I'm so excited. So. I saw you play at Bunkers once. You did see me play at Bunkers once. <laughs> I played at Bunkers a bunch back in the day. Like, uh, and I didn't realize at the time what a privilege that was. Yeah. We were a fledgling, you know, original song band. And we, for a while, had a Thursday night gig at Bunkers. That was pretty dope. And I didn't realize until later, like, that doesn't happen for just anybody. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it was really special. For my listeners, I want to just say Bunkers is one of the music clubs in Minneapolis, uh, an old kind of cornerstone of the Minneapolis music scene. There's a band called The Combo that plays every Sunday night and Monday night. They just do covers, but it's a bunch of badass players that used to be with Prince or uh, other kind of like local Minneapolis studio legends. A lot of times touring artists will come through to play a show in Minneapolis and then they'll stop by Bunkers if they happen to be playing their show on Sunday night or Monday night to sit in with the combo. Other than Sunday night and Monday night, it's basically just other co- Minneapolis cover bands, but the room has kind of like a legendary feel to it because, I mean, when Prince was alive, he would show up at Bunkers a lot just to like be part of the music scene as an audience member from what I understand. For sure. And I mean, that's still the vibe there. People, people know that Bunkers is a spot that on stage is always going to be a great musical act and so like you said the giants the badasses that are in town like when they want to go hang out and hear some music they just show up the bunkers and see who's on stage and i remember when my band was playing you know people would all the mint condition guys would show up on a regular basis yeah. jelly bean johnson showed up a bunch you know yep. it, was, it was just it was just wild that's minneapolis though that's that's what's what's dope about this town Rest in peace, Billy Franzi, mm. guitar player from the combo who passed away about a month ago, I believe. Yes, it was really cool. Like, people in the neighborhood did a little memorial outside of Bunker. There was flowers and signs. It was really cool. Like, the Minneapolis, I know you talk about this on your podcast a lot, but like, the Minneapolis music scene is dope. It's a family. It's special. It's really, really special. And I'm like, I'm not doing it full-time professionally like you are but it's still really cool to have even spent a few years as a part of that and you know the people you meet and yeah you just realize like it's something special here and to be able to say like you know what yeah i took the stage of bunkers or the caboose or all these spots around town and you know got to play for these badass casts that just rolled up to have a beer on a tuesday night or whatever you know it's pretty mm-hmm. sweet. you live right above bunkers it's in a different building. Right. But it's about 
50, 50 yards from yeah from my window. Right, so. right. Like shares the parking lot. Yeah, it's pretty dope. So I'm glad they're gonna. I'm I'm gonna need to move here soon, but like uh, I'm glad they're gonna open up in enough time for me to walk over and hear some shows so i'm super stoked about that cool wanted to mention that to you i remember going there for the first time i think i was just out of high school everybody was talking about the combo and how killing it was michael bland was playing drums yep sunny t was playing bass the guy that's been in wong's band for the past little bit billy franzi Mm -hmm. on guitar downtown bill brown on uh keys keys dude it it was mind-blowing to me that these guys were playing earth wind and fire (laughs) <laughs> tunes on a monday night and just laying waste just absolutely torching the entire room every every tune it's a special thing i know we're going on and on about it but if you're ever in minneapolis and you get a chance to go to bunkers and hear the combo on a sunday or a monday night it's a bucket list you got to do it you yes do it, so okay i have another just quick story about bunkers before we move on from this the first time that i ever played there was with jesse lang uh, Johnny Lang's sister. Yep, she was kind of in her American Idol moment there, and playing a lot of shows under her own name around Minneapolis. And she was trying out a new guitar player, and this guy had flown in from Vegas. Like he had been, he'd had a, a gig in Vegas where he was, you know, like a residency kind of thing, like playing for some show. And he's looking to maybe join Jesse Lang's band. This is like I'm maybe 25 years old. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, dude has had a standing residency at some show in Vegas, flew in just to play with Jesse, so I'm assuming this guy is a heavyweight. Mm -hmm. We have a rehearsal, and he is seemingly a little strung out and doesn't really know any of the tunes, and it's a power trio. Jesse's not playing anything. She's just singing. This dude is playing guitar, and then there was a bass player and myself. And all the tunes are guitar riff tunes. Yeah. We were playing like Lenny Kravitz covers and like okay. stuff that like really needs the guitar player to know how the song goes. Yep. For sure. And this dude hadn't done his homework. Jesse was like, oh, well, you know, just, just listen to the songs more. And I was a little bit taken aback. This is like in a season of my life when I don't have any understanding of how the national or international music scene engages being a professional musician. I only know my circles of local Minneapolis players. And all of those guys and gals were like really killing musicians trying hard like really they really care i come from this scene of people who are just like we love this so we respect it and so we're gonna do our due diligence and then this dude rolls in from vegas and he like hasn't listened to music and it kind of you know it pinged my radar like whoa really that's weird but then jesse was kind of like no he's he's gonna be great turns out he didn't listen to the music the gig was the next night and the entire first set, he's just clams. Oh, no. So Jesse ends up putting on the guitar that she had with her almost as like a, a prop. And she's struggling to just like state the chord changes so that she's got some sort of reference so that the audience can kind of tell what she's doing. Me and the bass player are looking at each other like, what is going on? And this guitar player is just completely shitting the bed. Every tune, he ends up leaving after the first set no way he just leaves and so we have to struggle through the second set without i mean it's just like jesse who's she's a killing singer but but not a guitar player yeah but she did she did great making up for that and bass player myself just power trio wow it was it was so startling to me Mm. that someone would disrespect music that much like disrespect the musicians that they're with 
disrespect right. that space, which I held to be like a sacred space, bunkers. Guy just shows up, pisses all over everything, and then leaves like there's no... It's like, well, he's definitely not getting the gig. And I'm thinking to myself, he's not getting another gig for the rest of his life. (laughs) (laughs) But he probably did, you know. He probably is still doing what he does, you know what I mean? I don't remember his name. I don't remember anything about the situation other than it it defined for me what not to do. Right on, right on. You know, you touched on this in your Dave King episode about how, like, like shitting the bed, period. Like, you don't do that. But you definitely don't do that in Minneapolis. No. And you definitely don't do that on stage at Bunkers. You know, like, right. everybody knows that that's a massive faux pas. That's crazy. That's a crazy story, man. I thought everybody knew that. <laughs> Apparently, this guy didn't. <laughs> but again, like like you mentioned, when, when Dave and I were discussing it, and then as I've even talked about this with other people like Corey Wong or John Fields or these these guys from Minneapolis, there's there is something... What you're referencing is, I think, just the high bar that everyone in Minneapolis has for each other because of the high respect that everyone in Minneapolis has for music. Yeah. Like, we're, we're going to try hard because we love this and we love each other and we love what is happening when we all try hard, which I guess I'll use that to segue into how you and I met playing at Eagle Brook Church. Yes, sir. The... Uh, the local Twin Cities mega church template. Mega, mega, mega church. <laughs> Man, I mean, what, they have, they have 10 locations, and you and I met there when they only had one. Yeah, dude. The old White Bear Lake campus. That was all they White had. White Bear Lake campus. They had the main room and the upper room. That's yep. all they had at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you were playing keys. I immediately noticed your musicality and just like sensitivity and intentionality. And then we, a little bit after the rehearsal, we were talking about stuff, and I mentioned... Modesky Martin and Wood and John Schofield. Yeah. And you were you were like, oh. <laughs> and then it was yeah. like, then we were best friends. That's, man, that's exactly how I remember it, man. I, okay, so here's the deal. Like, how I remember this actually is, yeah, I was playing at Eagle Brook. You were playing at Eagle Brook. We were in different circles. I kind of was on, like, I was on the Upper Room B squad. <laughs> no, it's how it was. It's how it was. That's and not then, how I remember um, that, but okay, okay. The time we played together was like one of the first times I got put on a, you, you remember how they were back in the day. Like that was yeah. one of the first times I got put on like the main room thing. And you were, you were legend already around that campus, you know? And so I was like, I was pretty stoked to be playing with, with Steve Gould. I'd never met you before. And I remember, I remember rehearsing. You kicked off the tune and you're playing the you're playing. I don't remember what the tune was, but you're playing the groove. And I'm like, man, this guy has got great feel and it makes it easy for me to do what I do. And I'm just doing what I do. And I can see you staring through the drum cage over your hi-hats and just kind of smiling at me because you're like, oh, I kind of feel this dude. I remember, I'll never remember that. <laughs> yes. And we were kind of like looking at each other like, wow, this is kind of cool. Like, this feels great. And then we were best friends. Truly, because... I completely poached you over to my dad's church, like not not long after that, because we needed a B three player. We had a great musical director and like grand piano player, but we needed a good keys too, mm-hmm. mostly a B three. And they had a house B three there, which I remember you were stoked about, like an actual B three with a Leslie. Yeah. And I'm like, how about you come play every Sunday at my dad's church instead of at this mega church where we met. That worked like a charm because that's what we did Man, for a long time. For a long time. That was the beginning of something something great. I don't know if I ever told you. I'm sure I've told you since. But like at the time, I think I lied to you and said I knew how to play a B3 and I didn't. <laughs> 
Like I knew a little bit. Like I'm a keyboard player. I knew a little bit. And like at the time, you remember I was I had a tone wheel organ, a Roland VK seven. Yeah. I had started using that at Eagle Brook because they were I mean, they were the cool church and they were doing loops and everything everybody was into that. I didn't know how to I'm a piano player. Like I'm an old school keyboard player, Rhodes, Whirly, like that's me. Mm-hmm. I needed a gimmick to like be relevant there and so i'm like i think i'll do the b3 thing because no one else does that here and i just had started dabbling in it and was okay at it when you're like oh you play a b3 huh why don't you come to to my dad's church and play this b3 and i'm like yeah no problem man i had to woodshed on a b3 to learn how to play it And, and then that church new hope church was like my first sunday was just straight gospel like israel hooten tunes yep. and thai tribet like yep. the first sunday i'm like oh okay they're about about it and i had to learn but it was so good for me so horn section yeah man full choir <laughs> yeah yeah i mean most of the people in the choir were old and white but it was still a full choir <laughs> <laughs> good times man good times man those were good times and again for context for the listeners that's where you and i both met Corey wong was playing at yeah. my dad's church. He was attending Music Tech, or uh, McNally Smith is what they called it at the time. And I think he knew Matt, Matt Riley, the MD. Mm-hmm. And that, and then for a little while, that was the band at my dad's church. You, me, Corey Wong on guitar, and Justin yep. Reakin on bass. Justin Reakin on bass, and it was gold on a weekly basis, man. First of all, Four great guys. And Matt Riley. Matt Riley's a great guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. M- MD, piano player. Killing musicians. All all of us were also great creative minds. And I was just talking to... I don't remember who it was, but I was just talking to someone the other day about that experience and about all of those rehearsals where Pastor Jeff, you know, the worship pastor, would show up with a song that was really corny or terrible or just like a phrase and a line and be like, what do you guys want to do with that? And we'd be like, we got this, right? And we made yeah. great music, dude. Yeah. It was so much fun. They didn't have the template. It was a larger church, so there was like an actual sound system, and we had in-ear monitors, and I was running tracks and stuff. But they didn't have the mega church format of everything is just like the recording, and we're not going to really change any of the details. Like We would start rehearsals kind of with a blank canvas. Yeah. Like how the transitions were going to work and how we even treated the bridge. Yeah. Like what if what if we do the bridge down instead of like full intensity? Oh, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, sure. Like like that's just not how mega churches work these days. Like that stuff is all nah. uh scripted ahead of time, which ha- has its own appeal to me. Like I, you know, I like making a plan and sticking to it, but those trenches that we were in musically at my dad's church, we were creating. For sure. Not just replicating. I've been playing in churches since I was 11 years old. Like, that's not a thing where the musicians are kind of driving the bus a little bit, you know? Obviously under guidance of, of the of the people in charge or whatever, but, like, I'm always, uh, when I reflect on it, I'm always really grateful at how much leeway, you know, Pastor Jeff gave us to just right make great music and like we were talking about earlier the respect all of us had for the music even on stuff that we didn't like mm-hmm. but we still had great respect for the music and great respect for the craft and great respect for the context and was about creating the moment there in that worship set for whatever that moment needed and 
to have a group of people who understood that were skilled and we worked really well together like man that's a that's a sweet memory that i'm gonna hold on to my whole life like that was a really great thing same man i was just talking with uh bethany jones oh yeah chris jones daughter uh on instagram the other night we were chatting about just the new hope church worship team days and she was remembering Mm -hmm. remembering it fondly just like you were just now I learned how to use Ableton in that setting. So did I. They bought you, know, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, you're you're on the keys patches side of it, and I'm on the run and track side of it. But yeah. a lot of the workflow that I use regularly now was developed and workshopped in those worship team settings. For sure, they gave me leeway to like to learn that. I think even while you were still there, I, that's when I learned to write tracks and loops. And when you weren't there, I was running the running the set. You know, like. That stuff was really cool for me. Like that's where I got a chance to learn that, make some bad mistakes, and like it was great. <laughs> yeah, man. All right, so let's. I'm gonna use that as a a launching point into a just a question I like to ask all the guests. Uh, I've just kind of recently started doing this, but it's gonna be a, a staple for me. What is music to you? Ooh. What role does music play in your life? Like, how do you view it? How do you think about it? What is your history with it? You can kind of take this question whatever direction you want. What is music to BJ Ermitter? That's a dope question. Um, I think I'll start with how music was introduced to me and what it became, I guess, over the years. So music has been a part of my life the whole, as early as I can remember. I started taking music lessons when I was four years old. I started taking piano lessons. A little bit by accident, my mom bought a summer of piano lessons for my older sister, and she took one lesson and hated it. And my mom was my mom was heated and was like, "What am I gonna do? I've already prepaid." You got hand me down piano lessons, and I was in the back of the van. I remember sitting in the back of the van. We had picked my sister up from soccer, and she had to go to piano lessons, and she was like not having it. And I was like, "I'll take them," you know. And they had to, my parents had to talk the teacher into teaching me because I was four and the teacher was like, nah, I'm not doing that. But I took to it immediately. And that was the beginning for me. As well, my dad, who is not a musician, I don't even, I wouldn't even say he has a great understanding of music, but he has a great appreciation for music. My dad was a huge influence in me in that he was always feeding me music. For Christmas one year, I got the wood grain tape recorder, uh, Stevie Wonder, <laughs> you know, yeah. I got a Stevie Wonder tape and a Michael Jackson tape and a John Coltrane tape. What? Yeah. Your dad gave you a Coltrane recording? He gave me a Coltrane recording when I was like six or seven years old. Wow. My dad, my dad would get me out of bed at night to come down and like see the Tonight Show because he's like, you got to see Prince's on the Tonight Show. You got to see this or... Michael Jackson's on whatever like he would he was just like you got to see this and then we'd watch it and then he'd be like go to bed we never really talked about it he just knew stuff was kind of cool and was like I think you should see this so like that's where that love of music came for me at the same time I'm taking piano lessons I'm fairly talented for a young kid so on top of doing recitals and whatnot my mom's always looking for opportunities for me to do like special performances at church you know that's a thing in church cultures while they're (laughs) taking the offering Yeah, some kids got to do special music. and <laughs> So I'd be up there in my little suit, my little white suit, doing whatever, playing these songs. and So that was the beginning of it for me. Took classical lessons. 
worked really hard at it because my parents saw a lot of potential in me. And so they kind of pushed me into like learning more and more. When I was 12, I started taking some jazz lessons from a local guy named Tom Weakland. And that's where I really learned to love sitting in the act of playing music. I think I've told you this story before, but my mom always wanted me to have this like harsh teacher that like really worked me hard. And his thing was I would go to his studio. I'd be sitting at the piano and he would talk. We'd talk for a little bit and be like, hold on a second. And he'd go rummage in the back for like 10 minutes and he'd come back with the record and he'd put it on the record player. And he'd sit down at the B3 and he'd start comping chords along with the record. And we'd listen to the record while he's just kind of comping chords. He'd stop the record. He'd keep comping chords. And then he'd be like, play. Yeah. I'm 12 years old, terrified sitting at the grand piano. And he didn't care. Like, he would wait 15 minutes for me to get enough courage to, like, play one note. And I'd be like, C, 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 C. And that's how I learned to improvise that's where I learned about the conversation that's in music and that's when like it came alive to me music to me it's a language it's a place it's almost like a plane like a different astral plane to me the movie soul where he's in the zone like that's a real thing to me that's a super real real thing thing to me yes and through all the years of playing and practicing and getting ready for performances and whatever music became a place like I grew up I grew up in a kind of a you know kind of a challenged family and so like music became a place when I wasn't playing it that it was an escape for me when I was listening to it I always wanted headphones I always wanted music as loud as I could get it because it drowned out everything else and it just transported me somewhere else didn't matter what it was and then when I was playing it that experience became real to me when I got beyond like the technical aspects of playing and practicing and getting to express myself through song music became a place to me yeah that's what that's what music is to me it's a place it's a language it's therapy um when I'm playing music whether by myself or with another group of people and it's in that zone it's a place that's more real to me than this conversation you and I are having like it's so real to me but you don't know that unless you experience it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, so I'm about to just jump off the deep end here with this hippie dippy. Let's dippie. do it. Uh, <laughs> have you read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle? Man, I haven't. I got 900 people giving me that book and I still haven't read it. I've read several passages that people send me, but I know what you're talking about. The overall concept of like ego dissolution or recognizing that there's a difference between you as defined by your brain activity or your fingerprint or your eye, your retina scan, or even your skill sets. There's a difference between that you and then the you who kind of observes all of those skill sets and is aware of that. Right. This is, yes. this is an old idea within Buddhism and other Eastern traditions, but it's, it's kind of newly making, it's like broken shore at, at the general consciousness level in the United States and in the West. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. There's like the self is a bit of a construct Mm -hmm. and underneath the self is just awareness that is more real than the mirage and the veneer and the construct of the self. And I feel as a musician, the zone that you're talking about and the way that when, like when you're in the zone, it feels more real than the actual tangible like 
like I'm tapping on the desk, right? Like yeah. the desk is real, right? The desk is real. Right. Isn't my haircut real? Cause my hair is shorter now. Cause I got a haircut. That's real. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 Okay. But when I'm in the zone playing music, that actually feels capital R real. Like there's something happening with my consciousness and my awareness that fuses with the real self, not the construct of the self. Right. For sure. It is the deep end and it does sound kind of hippy dippy, but if I hadn't experienced it, I I mean, I've experienced it. I know it's real and I know what that feels like and I'm right there with you. And to a certain extent, that experience helped guide me and save me through adolescence, which was, you know, adolescence was tough for a lot of folks, but it was tough for me. Um, and like that experience helped save me and I think helped paved the way for me to understand what you know what Eckhart Tolle is talking about in terms of like the there's the you that it's experiencing all these things right and then there's you that's observing that and I didn't know what that was at the time but that's where I was first able to sense that separation and the ability to watch things kind of go by and be like that doesn't have to touch me because that's not as real as as this this music I'm listening to or this music I'm playing right it's almost like the music is the vehicle to take me into the deeper level of consciousness that my cultural conditioning and kind of like my behavioral traits, even like my personality traits, they prevent me from going to that level. Right. They almost keep me preoccupied with the surface level of you know, the actual events, the things that are happening. Like, oh, I'm worried about my bills Yeah, because bills feel very real or like you know, I'm annoyed with my headache. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dude, I'll never forget. I was, uh, I had a pretty bad headache one morning really early. We were in Tokyo. Uh, I played a gig there with Owl City and we needed to fly to the next place like pretty early. And there was a bit of a drive in the van from the hotel to the airport. And like, I had like kind of a long day in front of me of travel. I think we were going to Indonesia, in fact. And I was like kind of pissed because my headache wasn't leaving me alone and I was tired and everybody in the van was in the same kind of negativity spot of just yeah. we're tired. We've been away on this tour for a little bit. You know, we all have headphones in. Nobody's talking to each other. I'm looking out the window, listening to Tokyo 96 by Keith Jarrett, uh. the Keith Jarrett trio. And within three tracks, I was completely revitalized. Mm. Listening to this music, the effect, it took me out of all of the discomfort that my very present circumstances were creating. Like I have a headache. I'm tired. I'm stuck in a van. Then I'm going to be stuck on an airplane. That's all real, right? That's my schedule. That's my circumstances and the facts behind what's happening. Yeah. And yet the music just takes me right out of those things and into a completely different headspace that, I mean, I want to shout from the rooftops whenever I can that that's possible. Yeah. For sure. When I hear you describing the zone and how music is a place for you, I'm so excited to grab that and run yeah. in this direction of like consciousness has these layers yes. and there's deeper layers yes. than just the one where you're annoyed with your headache. Right. And music is one of my really particularly thoughtful students. I, t I, I do a lot of Marco Polo conversations with my students that live out of state, mm -hmm. like the guys that I do online lessons with. And he, one of the, specifically particularly thoughtful and insightful students that I've got. He's a lot younger than me, but he's always sharing deep wisdom with me, right? I'm like I'm the, the assumption is I'm giving him a lesson and I learn from him all the time. He's like I <laughs> I think music is a shortcut or like a cheat code mm. 
to the deeper state of consciousness. Man, I was just about to say before you said that, I feel like music lubricates the pathway, you know, it lubricates the doorway to help you just slide into that, yeah. you know, because I think even if you're not a musician, almost anybody can name an experience where you were in a certain state and a song came on and then it transported you somewhere. Yes. Like, I think that's an almost universal experience. Let me affirm and encourage you like, yep, that's real. And lean into that because whether you play music or not, like that's a gift that is all music, whatever the kind of it is you like. But like that's such a gift, right? It's such a gift. But I guess to, to roll back to your dad giving you some records, not everyone engaging in the act of music making is trying to necessarily give you that gift or even access that layer. Not all musicians are going to that place. For sure. Some of them are just kind of like, my friends and I would call it musical masturbation. <laughs> they're just trying to like show you what they're capable of and yeah. prove that to themselves mm -hmm. and almost like give themselves a round of applause for their abilities. Other people are just trying to make money. Other people in the music world are maybe like they have something to prove to uh you know their parents like they got put in music lessons and they're trying to like get their dad to love them or what i don't know i mean there's so many reasons that people engage in music but those records mm -hmm. that your dad gave you yeah the older i get and the more aware i am of music's power to transport me to this sacred place almost i start recognizing mm -hmm. the musicians throughout history who have been fervently and diligently seeking that kind of journey with their music and Coltrane would be one of the masters. Master, master, master. I think the thing I would say to that, too, is whatever you believe about consciousness or the soul, I think the soul, your soul knows the difference, you know? Yeah. Right? There can be a dude standing on the corner pontificating about any sort of subject and maybe making a lot of sense and being really clear with his thinking. And then there's Maya Angelou. <laughs> And whether you right. like Maya Angelou or in poetry or whatever, but your soul knows the difference between someone who's doing that thing of transporting you to a place and connecting you to a consciousness or a reality that's beyond us. Yes. And somebody who's just saying some words. That's why I look at my dad in this music like any he doesn't know anything about music, really. But I think he knew his soul knew like. Ooh, there's something special about this, right? It makes me feel a kind of way. You know, I know you talk about that all the, uh, all the time with music. It makes you feel a kind of way. Yeah. And to not only recognize that, to, but to be like, I think you should feel a kind of way too. So you I want you to hear this. You, you've mentioned a couple times that your dad didn't know much about music, but that he appreciated music. Yeah. And the way that you just defined his appreciation of music, I would articulate as he damn well knew something about music. Well, there you have it. Like, <laughs> he he knew where <laughs> where that magic was was coming yeah, from, and that you, his son, needed to hear it. It's like, hey, get in on this. Yeah, there's something happening here. Yeah, I don't know how to tell you what it is, but that doesn't matter. Uh, which is, yeah. again, it, it reminds me of your teacher sitting down with a record. Like, hey, you feel that? You feel that? I'm going to start laying some foundation for you to get in on it. Yeah. As soon as you feel it. Start chiming in. As soon as you know what to say, just go ahead and say it. No pressure. We'll sit here and wait. I'm going to set a backdrop. I'm going to set the table for you. And yeah. you just come in and start having a bite whenever you're ready. Yeah, man. That's teaching. Oh, I love that. It was such good teaching. And like the feedback, when I say it was a conversation, like to be 12 and like 
I'm playing the root and the minor. Th- we're playing blues or whatever. I'm playing the root and the minor. Th- there's two notes, right? Because that's all I know how to do. But I do it in a way that like inspires him, and he talks back on his B3. Yeah. Right. I'm 12 years old, and I'm like, oh, did I do something cool right there? Did I do something? And I do something else, and he talks back on his yes. B3. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh man, like that's look. Let me get all excited, but like that's that's what made it come alive for me. Like mm-hmm. it's not just a thing on a recording. It's actually like breathing between. Anyway, we're getting deep on that, but like. That's, oh, I love it. Let's go. Let's go I as deep it. as possible. <laughs> I, the the listenership for the Steve Gould show has heard me talk ad nauseum about Happy Apple, that trio that my teacher Dave King was in, Minneapolis musicians. That was the thing that they gave us their audience every night that that I saw them play in Minneapolis. They would have those conversations like you just mentioned that you and your teacher had. They would have those just between themselves on stage mm-hmm. in such a potent, clearly audible and perceivable way. And they were speaking to one another about such deep truths, such like emotionally moving things. Mm-hmm. And I just watched that night after night, soaking it up. I just couldn't wait to get in the practice room at the time, I was playing a lot with Chris Morrissey, so okay. he and I would both go see Happy Apple play, and I just could not wait to get into the practice room and have those kinds of conversations with him Yeah, or get to my next lesson with Dave and ask him about something that he had musically spoken to Michael, the saxophone player, or watching these guys do that, realizing that that was a goal. That's one of the targets that music has. That's one of the objectives. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe within the music industry, the objective is make money. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps if you're in high school and you're just trying to like get a girlfriend, the objective is to just look cool. Right. But then you get around the heavyweights and you realize that the objective is this deep cosmic conversation about mm. capital R reality. Yeah, yeah. And we use we use sound, not words. Right. And it, oh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm as stoked as possible right now, BJ. <laughs> All right. All right. We're into something good then. This is one of my best friends in the world, BJ Ermiter, for people who listen to the Steve Gould show. And if I'm going to be just completely analytical about friendship, I observe now at age 41 in my life, the people who people who are my closest friends are the people who get excited about the stuff I get excited about and want to dig with me deeper into that dirt. We got like the music sandbox here. And we're both like, yep. let's go. And we're both just double fisting, like <laughs> like digging as hard as possible, bouncing ideas off each other, talking about it. So you and I used to do this for hours and hours every night. Hours and hours and hours on the patio, in the driveway, on the deck. Right around the time that you started playing at my dad's church, you moved yep. uh, about two miles away from me. Yep. So suddenly now we, we're seeing each other every Wednesday night for rehearsal and Sunday morning for church. But then we're also right. seeing each other every other night of the week to just drink Jameson <laughs> and talk like this. You remember, I was I was unemployed. I had nothing better to do. That was another life saving period of my time, man. I I mean, you're one of my best friends in the whole in the whole world, obviously. But like, man, I don't think you realize uh, what a lifesaver your friendship was at the time that you came around. Like, it was a low point in life for me, and just the fact of like you lived up the road and we're. Like, let's hang out and talk deep about stuff. Like, it gave me something to look forward to. And, and so, anyway, you're you're one of my best friends, and I'm really grateful to you for, for that investment of time and 
um, all those conversations we've had, you know. Well, back at you, man. That's the point I'm trying to make. The people who become my closest friends are the people who want to do that. Yes, sir. Like, who, who are open to the conversations and, and want to, like, dig in on the same trajectory. Word. You know, it's like, I remember your wife at the time, Leah, mentioned that I was your drinking buddy. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of a funny, like, I'm like, all right, we'll go with that. But that's not what this is. No. Like, if I if I no. needed a drinking buddy... I would pick someone who didn't push me so hard about white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Because you taught right? me everything I know about that. And those are un- man, that those was, are uncomfortable lessons. Man, that was a journey too, bro. And just like everything else, like you ask good questions and you got in and you dug in and you stayed in even when it got uncomfortable. So, you know, the the deep level of conversation. I mean, drinking buddies, we had deep level of conversations about drinking, you know, like <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But yeah, white supremacy, that was a thing that I didn't know, like, I knew we were good friends, but, like, conversations about white supremacy tend to kill friendships, and it has in, in the past for me. Like, it's killed a lot of friendships. Sure. And the fact that, like, it's 2021, and we're better friends than ever, and it's been cool to see you go from where you were in 2008 to the things I hear you talking about and expressing so clearly and articulately now and be like, man... It's been cool to see. It's been humbling that you've listened and internalized that. Um, there was even a point in those conversations where I, I told you to quit asking me questions and start googling some stuff. And <laughs> yes, you know that was helpful. I mean? That was a helpful thing for you to say. And you did it, you know. And uh, so that that's been really encouraging to me because um, not not all white dudes are open to that, but that's why we're friends, right? Well, man, I mean, I wasn't open to it back then until someone like you it's not that you're you have the superpower of explaining it just right so that all the white people who listen to you talk are going to get i remember my friend cody talking about arguments that come from pathos like um passion like you're going to listen to my argument because i'm just yelling so much yeah yeah. or arguments that come from logos like logic like you're going to listen to my argument because it's just sequentially sound mm-hmm. versus arguments that come from ethos, which is like, you're going to listen to my argument because of who I am. Ooh. Right? Like, Ooh. like that, Ooh. Y- who you were to me, like back then, man, I was listening to fucking Rush Limbaugh. Were you really dude? Yes. I didn't know that. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know where else to turn as white kid from the suburbs in the Midwest Grew up evangelical. Yeah. I'm listening to Bill O'Reilly. I'm listening to Rush Limbaugh. And to your point earlier about the soul knowing the difference, I used to listen to uh, Dennis Prager as well. And back then, I mean, that dude seems like he's in a different camp these days, but back then he resonated with my soul a little differently than some of those other like shock and awe pundits. Sure, sure. Michael Savage. Like I'd listen to Michael Savage and I'm like, this dude is actually an asshole. I, I, I think that's pretty apparent. Right, right. He's making all of the logical points that the ideology I've already decided is correct wants me to learn about. So it's helpful for mm-hmm. me to get further indoctrinated via his words. But I can tell by from his delivery that he's just an asshole. Yeah, man. Felt that way about Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh too. But again, like I'm just trying to reinforce the ideology. Yeah. So I'm talking to you and I'm like parroting some of these points that these guys are making. 
and you're like about that (laughs) (laughs) and those guys pale in comparison to you Mm. as far as just proximity and orbit to steve gould those are just names on the radio station but you are my best friend yeah man you are this guy that i love admire play music with on the regular like enter into the sacred zone that we were describing like you and i are walking into that zone together all the time yeah teaming up and you're posing some questions to me that i had to listen to even though they were uncomfortable yeah like the the things that you were peeling back about white supremacy about just the experience of a black man in america the things that you're sharing with me, the, the things that you're letting me in on, mm-hmm. I can't hide from them. I can't pretend they're not there yeah. because it's BJ telling me. Like, I got to listen. Like, your argument from ethos was like, the the weaker parts of my self and my ego were trying to deflect challenges to that ideology that I had decided was correct, right? Sure. So you're presenting challenges and I'm trying to deflect them and I'm powerless to deflect them because it's <laughs> you, man. Because I respect you so much. I mean, now and back then. So like I, I, anything that you would, like you're talking about how you, it's encouraging for you to hear me saying some of the things I'm saying now. Man, pat yourself on the back for that because I owe all of that stuff to you. Wow. Okay. So I'm super humbled by it. Thank you for saying those are kind words because that's from this end of things, as you know, and we've talked about, like, that's not easy. Like, that's work, you know, because <laughs> yes. when you, when you want to hang with your boy, you just want to hang with your boy. Right. You don't want to, like, be like, hey, maybe you're saying some things that aren't cool, you know. <laughs> right. Hey, hey, dude, <laughs> you you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> like, you're, <laughs> you're actually picking at a scab that's generations deep well, from my l- people. Let me, let me, like, what, what? Hold on. Let me correct that, though, because it's not about hurting feelings. And I know that's what you, not what you meant necessarily. Fair enough. Yes. Like, the ethos goes both ways, bro. Like, you're my friend, and I know your heart. And I'm like, I don't think you want to be out here saying this stuff, mm, you know? Yes. I don't want that for you. Like, that might work in the circles you run into, but you're going to be in a context and you're going to say some stuff that you probably shouldn't be saying. And I don't want that for you because that, that's how that works. Like, I care about you. I respect you. You're a, you're a well-thought, intelligent, kind dude, mindful dude. And, like, if you are the person I think you are, I don't think you want to act this way. You know oh. what I mean? And... <laughs> Yes, I that, know that's exactly. how that works. I just even hearing you say that just now, I'm so grateful that you would be a friend of a friend of mine at the level of like, hey man, I don't think I don't think you want to be doing this, as opposed to like, oh really? Oh, you want to do that? Okay, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, I am as guilty as anyone else of feeling a friend cross a line with me and then just crossing that person's name off of my list of friends. For sure. As soon as they cross that line, I'm like, oh, got it. Okay, well, you go stand over there then on the other side of the, of, uh, the line that I call close to me. That's my jam. I do <laughs> I do that with so many people. Why didn't, the fact you, that we, why didn't you do it to me? Because I feel, like, I feel like I knew that if I was able to raise your consciousness, again, because I know your heart and I know how you, like, I know how you treat music. I know how you thought about theology at the time. I know how you thought about being a dad and a husband. Like so many of our conversations were about intentionality and trying hard. Like how many times we talk about trying hard. Yeah. And I'm just like a guy that tries hard and who is whiffing in this area is, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, yes, charitably, that's ignorance. You know what I mean? Right. And I have to try 
and you were open to having that conversation and we had some uncomfortable ones and then you called me the next day and be like hey you want to come have a bonfire i'm like oh i guess i didn't offend him like let's get back at it and it was it was fine you know i so i think it's your response to it that made me like you didn't get your feelings hurt you didn't cry about it and be like well no you're the racist you know you didn't do any of that stuff <laughs> and you a lot of times actually you didn't respond a lot of times you just hmm and i would see you come back i think i told you this too i would see you come back two three six months later with an idea and i was like oh shit this dude is listening to me you know yeah, I thought I was just bouncing off his head, and you're like, "Let me ignore this, so we can just hang out and be friends." But then I realized you were internalizing it, thinking about it, and able to express it in other ways, in other platforms. I see you on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But like, oh, wait a minute, he he listened to what I said, and I mean, I think that goes a long way as well. That reminds me of the conversation you and I were having uh, in the Idea Lab recently. For, for my listeners, the Idea Lab is a Marco Polo chat thread that I have with three of my dear, dear friends. BJ is one of them. And the four of us get on Marco Polo and just talk about ideas like every week where there's like messages flying back and forth. And I think it was about a month ago that we were talking about honesty in relationships, in particular honesty with our children. Mm. Like we want our kids to trust us enough to be honest with us which means, first and foremost, or this is what we discussed, at least in the group, we can't just make them feel like they're in trouble as our first response to them being honest about a struggle they're having. Right. If our kids come to us and tell us about something they're doing, something that is, quote, wrong or whatever, if the first thing I do is like, oh, yeah, well, now you're grounded. Yeah. <laughs> then guess what? They're never going to be honest again. Right. And we can extrapolate that same principle into friendships. For sure. When I... <laughs> swing and whiff at the societal pitch of how to deal with white supremacy and you're like oh so you don't know how to handle that okay never mind yeah man i mean that's the moment that i'm like oh well well, you're the racist (laughs) but (laughs) the same thing the other direction if you say to me hey man hold on you might be misunderstanding the situation here from behind eyes that are set in a face that has white skin and let me talk to you about this. And I'm like, at that point, I have to choose how I'm going to respond to that. Like, and the two of us, if we're going to remain friends, constantly engage in this, this act of extending charitability to the other person's actions. Yeah. In fact, Misty and I were watching a thing on YouTube about love recently, like a, th- a therapy thing. Our therapist had recommended we watch this little spiel. And the guy was saying, love is that, the kind of like unswerving commitment to interpreting the other person's failures in a charitable way Mm. like when you don't show up for me in a situation that leaves me feeling kind of hurt i can choose to interpret that action as like a complete flaw in your character like an utter lack of redeemable soul in, in you like wow what a problematic individual or i can more charitably interpret it like you just did for me like i mean the charitable interpretation of what you're doing is ignorance yeah you just don't know Mm -hmm. and if you're going to tr- cross that bridge from not knowing to knowing, I'm going to have to tell you. Wow, that's like how friendships are built. That's how it works. It's how it works. I mean, I, I should say, I'm going to say for the benefit of your listeners, we were having these conversations before they were societally as tender as they are now. Like, So we had the benefit right. of having these conversations before they were so polarizing and everybody's mad and there's slogans and 
that's not I'm, I guess I'm not saying it's better or worse. I just think we had a more conducive context for uh, communication for understanding than yes. I think it's hard I think it's harder to two right now because even as I hear you talking like I've had plenty of experiences now like where if you were to say a catchphrase or quote something from a Rush Limbaugh like I'm pretty immediately writing you off off as a as an unsafe person yes you know absolutely I mean? well and, and I guess to be clear about the difference between 2009 and now over the past 11 years Rush Limbaugh rest in peace he proved that his words were more toxic than anyone maybe had considered back then. Right. Steve Gould quoting Rush Limbaugh in 2021 is a different thing than Steve Gould <laughs> quoting Rush in 2008. Word. That's that's real. In the same way that your experience walking down the streets of Minneapolis during the Derek Chauvin trial mm. is a different experience than you walking down the streets of Minneapolis in 2008. Yeah, man. For sure. You talked about that a lot when Misty and I were there hanging back in February. Mm -hmm. Just the vibe of Minneapolis. You know, okay, so I'm thinking about that because in some respects it's different for sure because there's a heightened energy. And in some respects it's the same because I still have black skin and the, the context hasn't changed. I think the difference is, and maybe we're making a segue here, but I think the difference is in 2021, now on top of the experience of being black and dealing with all the things that we deal with as black people in America, it's layered on top of white people's emotions, whether they are allies or whether they are afraid. And with whiteness being the norm in this country, like when white people get involved, suddenly it's it's a thing. It's a much different thing. Right. And so like some of it is the same. Some of it's a little bit different. I just want to, I'm always going to call out nuance there, but like, Oh, for that, sure. please do man. The, the way that you call out nuance is one of the most significant things that I constantly learn from you, especially in this area. Can you paraphrase what you just said? Uh, the difference between now and then being that now white people are involved. So, Walking through the streets of Minneapolis, like anytime I'm out in public, and I think many black people will, not everyone, because we're not a monolith, but I think many black people will describe their experience like this. Anytime I'm out in public as a black man, I'm aware of the fact that I'm black. I'm aware of my size and my stature. I'm aware of my demeanor. I'm aware of what I'm wearing. I'm aware of police and where they are i'm aware of everybody else and where they are because i as a black man in america am generally going to be assumed to be a threat and so i always have to be prepared for that what's different these days i think in the current context in 2021 is that white people are now aware of the threat right they're now aware that or we're starting to be heard about here's how it feels right yeah and we're seeing these incidents play out in a on a national stage on youtube and facebook and like we're all seeing the videos of it it's in the news and because it's in the news it's getting more uh it's getting more attention it's getting more law enforcement attention so this spring during the Derek chauvin trial that you referenced in minneapolis um, I can't think of the name of the operation, but the governor had an operation, which meant that there was National Guard troops just roaming the streets of Minneapolis. So now on top of the fact that I need to be aware of all the things that I'm aware of, 
the National Guard's not there because the streets aren't safe for black people. The National Guard's there because white people are afraid, right? Right. That's the difference of the context. And so when white people are afraid, suddenly everything's ratcheted up a little bit different, like a little bit higher. And now everybody's feeling, well, this doesn't feel good at all, right? It doesn't feel good at all. And if you talk to black people, it'd be like, yeah, how you like that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is <laughs> this is actually, right. it's heightened for sure, but like that feeling you feel, like that's Tuesday for me just on the way to work. And you're like, is this safe? Like, why is this happening? Is this a safe place? Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I need to move out of this city. Maybe this isn't my neighborhood. Maybe I shouldn't shop at this store, right? Maybe I'm not welcome here. Those are questions. You ask anybody who's marginalized, ask a black person or a Latinx person or an Asian person or or somebody who's queer, right? Mm-hmm. That's their life, right? That that assumption that we belong in the places, that we have rights to entitlements to places and spaces, that we proudly walk into a store or proudly post up at the park because we're Americans and that's what we do. That's not a universal feeling, man. And in the last few years, more people are getting a taste of what that feeling is like and nobody likes it, right? But you notice when a certain group of people is uncomfortable, the National Guard is here. And when another group of people is uncomfortable, nothing happens, right? Or or that marginalized group, when they're uncomfortable, they're told that the discomfort is only in their head. Or it's your problem. Right. Well, if you assimilate it and act more like me, <laughs> behave like me, dress like me, talk like me, those things won't happen to you, right? They're blamed for their own victimization, right? And uh, yep. that's that's a different context. That That's what I mean by that. Like, not to make it too heavy, for sure things are different now than they were 10, 12 years ago. But uh, I always kind of want to laugh a little bit when white people talk about like, well, can you believe how bad it is? <laughs> like we have 400 years of slavery in this country. Like we killed up all the indigenous people that were here before us. Right. We treated Asian people like trash. We treat Latinx people like trash. And now like, really? <laughs> well, that doesn't feel so good. You know, like that's funny to me a little bit. It's sure. Like, well, welcome to America. This is what America actually is. Ooh. Woo. This is, this is what I hoped would happen. The sharpness that you regularly bring to our friendship mm. that is such a beneficial thing for me in my thinking and in the way that I move through the world, I was hoping that just having you on the podcast would bring that sharpness. It always does, man. Every time I hang with you, you're saying stuff that makes me see the world more clearly and see, uh, let me put it this way, see what my role in helping things can be. Mm. I love that. I love that you phrase it that way. Like, it's not that you can see what's wrong with the world. You can see where your role is to, like, make it better. That's cool. Man, that's uh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I mean, that's the yeah. that's the objective on paper. And then, like we mentioned earlier, the ego, the construct of the self, perpetuated by the circumstances that I'm in, causing my kind of primal brain to rise up in fear or anger or jealousy or all the things that the primal brain does mm. prevents me from wanting to be helpful. Like then I don't want to be helpful anymore. Now I just want to be right. Right. Or or I want to be vindicated. Or I want to or I want to feel safe so I got to get it out of here. Right. You want to be you, protected from it. Right? Sure. Man, thanks for that. Okay, so let's just go even deeper. 
All right, let's do it. The other question I'm trying to ask all the guests, what's music to you? Here's the other question. What is God to you? Who is God? Oh, man. How do you, how do you think about God? How do you engage with God? What role does the concept play in your life these days, if any? Man, I was like, and we're going to talk about public education. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to get, toss oh, me some softballs. Okay, okay well, hold on. Hold about, on we're going to talk about, we're gonna talk about what, who God is. Yeah, we oh, are. Man. Yeah, but, but hold on a second. <laughs> okay. let, me, let me just say to the listeners, part of the reason BJ might wonder if we would talk about public, public education and leadership is that BJ Ermitter has a very high level of leadership in the largest public school. It's the fifth largest school district in the state of Minnesota. I yes. Mean. Yes, that's yes. true. You, you have leadership prowess. In, I have a bunch of notes in my phone about like leadership lessons that I've jotted down from things that you've said. Are you for real? I, I'm absolutely serious. And at the church I used to work at, there was a lot of, um, there was an air of like leadership really matters. And because leadership really matters, then that means that the people who are high up within the hierarchy at the church probably know a lot about leadership. And so they would, uh, give the rest of the staff lessons on leadership all the time, which is, you know, it's, it's whenever somebody's like, Hey, let me give you a lesson about something. When you didn't ask for that lesson, the first thing I want to do is measure their criteria, uh, like their credibility. Like why, like, why are you presuming to give me a lesson about leadership? Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) And I have these, you know, these notes in my phone about things that you've said, like stuff that has lodged in my mind as like, that's leadership. Pay attention to that. Mm. Yeah, man. You're talking about the soul knows the difference. Like BJ Ermitter says something about leadership that sticks. And I'm like, oh, and I like write that down. And then somebody, you know, in another context, maybe not at church, I shouldn't just throw them under the bus all the time, but like, like some, somebody somewhere else says something about leadership. And I kind of like bounce it off the stuff I've already learned from you, from the artists I've worked for, like Sarah Bareilles, who's such an incredible leader, or, you know, some of the just like, like Steve Jobs or like people who are known as such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I take the things that people toss me as like, here's a leadership thing that you should pay attention to. And I run it through that, that rubric, run it through that filtering system. Like, does this check out with some of the stuff that BJ's told me? That's high praise. We could spend the rest of the interview talking about leadership, That's high praise, man, because you know a thing or two about that. Oh. And uh, you know a thing or two about the complexity of working in a public school system and how... Uh, Wow, like every move, every chess move you make is going to hurt somebody even as you try to help other people or, I mean, you've, you've shared a lot of, I guess, uncomfortable truths about that world with me because of the seat that you have in it. Be that as it may, who's God? Who is God? Oh, by the way, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to deflect again. Speaking of Sarah Bareilles, she just did an episode of the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris talking about mental health, by the way. Oh, right on. And it was a killing episode. She's, I mean, we've always talked about how great she is and whatever, but like it was a really great episode. I'm an evangelist for the 10% Happier mm-hmm. podcast and the app. Dan Harris is doing great work around meditation and like self compassion and putting together some really great tools. So I'm always gonna, I'm telling everybody about it, but she was just on and it was a fantastic episode this week. So uh, I want to talk about that. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, You and I have talked about how great Sarah is. I haven't necessarily talked about that for the listeners. I worked in Sarah's band for about a year and a half, two years, in 2013, 2014. And I got a front row seat to what she's good at, which is everything. She's good at 
writing songs. Yep, everybody knows that. She's good at singing. Yep, everybody knows that. But you know what? Not everybody knows how good she is at singing because you don't hear her every night. Mm. It's one thing to hear her at on a record where there were a lot of production tricks to make sure you know she sounds good. It's another thing for you to hear her at one concert per tour. Mm. And then I got to hear her in soundcheck and at the gig every night for two years. She is a good singer. She, she's great at the piano. And then she puts on a guitar and she's great at the guitar. She's a sensitive mm-hmm. instrumentalist. A lot of times people who are mm-hmm. primarily vocalists when they pick up an instrument are not so sensitive on the instrument <laughs> as they are yeah. with their vocal cords. She's a sensitive instrumentalist. Uh, but then, listen, when you're working for an artist, they are the CEO of that company. Yeah. And that makes them a leader. Mm-hmm. Sarah Bareilles is a really good leader. Word. And then my dad dies out of nowhere. And I haven't talked to her in a little And she reaches out to me immediately when she hears the news. Someone who I, at that time, was no longer working for. At least not, I wasn't like in her regular band. I was working for other people. She's the one that worked, that reached out to me of the musicians that I was working alongside, pop artists. She's the one that reaches out and be like, I'm so sorry, I heard, I heard about your dad's passing. That's special. Like she's good at compassion. Yeah. And friendship. Not just all yeah. this other stuff. Well, whatever. Uh, that's enough of singing the praise of Sarah Bareilles. Listen to that Dan Harris episode. Who is God? Who is God? Um, so like... I think like music, I got to back up and provide some context of how God was introduced to me. So I grew up, uh, my parents were originally Catholic um, in the late 70s, early 80s when the, the kind of the charismatic Holy Spirit movement went through the Catholic Church. That's when my mom, mom got saved and became, you know, what we would call an evangelical these days. Mm-hmm. We left the Catholic Church, grew up in predominantly American evangelical, non-denominational churches, mostly Pentecostal, fundamentalist kind of kind of scenes. So I was introduced to God as, from that context, right? He's the God of the Bible, half loving, half kind of an a-hole, like probably he's going to kill you if you make a mistake, <laughs> you know, but also God as father. And, and to be clear, this God you're talking about was not present in Catholicism, but was present in the Pentecostal churches that you attended. For sure. That's like part of the backdrop that you're just inheriting. Yes. That's what I'm, that's what I'm coming up with. I will say one of the, one of the most special things to me was my mom taught me that God was a person whose presence could be experienced. Those weren't her words, but that's what I gathered. Um, that God was a personality and you could talk to him and he would talk back to you if you quieted yourself and listen. Mm. So I can, again, remember being very young. I would sit on my, I had a rocking horse. We lived in a suburban neighborhood and we had a hill in our backyard and there was a giant cottonwood tree at the top of the hill and I would drag my rocking horse under this cottonwood tree and I would sit on it and I wouldn't rock. Everyone used to laugh at me because I didn't rock on my rocking horse. I just would sit on it and stare up at the sky because I somehow knew either because my what my mom had taught me or because something I felt inside that there was something bigger than me who had knowledge of what was happening in the world that I could ask about things. Hmm. So that's who God was to me for most of my life, um, in and out of different churches and how, you know, churches portray God. Let me, in recent, let me paraphrase you quick. You're saying that regardless of which church, which specific church group you were maybe involved in, you always felt that God was there 
as both a listening ear and a speaking voice to you if you were quiet enough to listen and sincere enough to ask. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also the idea that God was also a being who was actively doing things. Now, different church traditions translate that different ways. But for me, um, God was a figure that didn't necessarily control all the things, but somehow, like this is a kid's logic, somehow made certain things happen and other things didn't happen. And so you could ask him to make things happen and maybe he would and maybe he wouldn't. But ultimately, the decision making in the world wasn't really up to us as humans. Right. There was somebody who is in charge. So that gives you more incentive to talk to right. God because you know right. God's going to maybe like take action on your behalf. Right. Absolutely. I think as I got older, growing in the evangelical faith tradition, uh, a lot of that time was spent with you studying theology and reading books and having deep, deep conversations. I think I more and more began to realize, and this process started for me when I was about 17, 18 years old, that I started to realize that my understanding of supposedly this giant cosmic concept such as a deity, such as God, was explained to me by some people, and I started to realize that these people actually don't know what they're talking about. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) You know, not their fault. They're just interpreting God the way that they know how, and this pastor says this, and that pastor says that, and it started to dawn on me, like, oh, y'all don't actually know. Nobody knows. When was that exactly? That started for me when I was about 18 years old. Okay. And I started to see, like, the adults in my church were like, you know, you're an 18, you, you, you're a know-it-all, right? But on top of that, I started to realize, like, no, I don't think you actually know. You're quoting things or you're interpreting things. And I was one, I've always been one that needs to understand. Lots of money in therapy to learn that. Understanding and meaning <laughs> are, like, they're, like, the upper echelon of things that I need to have in my life. Like, I need to understand how things work and why things work, and they have to mean something or do not want. I'm out. Check Check me out. Right. And as I started to realize, like, the people who are describing God to me don't know what they're talking about, you know, the idea of God starts to lose meaning. But it never lost that interpersonal, like, no, I'm pretty sure there's a being here who, like you, a presence that can be experienced. I don't know how it works, right? But that's what I thought. Um, I'm 44 now. I've been through a lot of life. I've had a lot of life experiences. Uh, I would not call myself an evangelical Christian anymore. I don't know what I would call myself. Right now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe God. That's why I've been trying to defer for the last twenty minutes. I think I view God as God to me is synonymous with life or consciousness, like the breath that is in all of us, the breath that's in all living things still larger than us. I don't know that the idea of God controls all things, but there's still a continuity that runs through all things that's bigger than us. And whether you want to call it obeying God or walking God's place or walking in God's path that he has for you, I don't know what all that means. But I have experienced that when I let go of the things that I want to control and I 
either sometimes through music or just meditation or just quieting myself, try to tune myself into whatever that continuity of things that runs through all life. It's observable. You can see how things work and you can step into the flow. And that's that's what it is. (laughs) That's what it is to me. You know, I don't know anymore if God is a person. I don't know. I don't know what God is. But I definitely sense there's something still, there's a consciousness, there's a being, there's something that's greater than myself. I still believe I can commune with it, I can engage, I can have a conversation, I can speak. Um, And I still believe I can receive messages back, whether I want to call that the cosmos or the universe or God or the ancestors or what have you. I use all of those terms, not to be indecisive or I don't know what the word is, dishonoring of the concept, but like, I don't want to be so beholden to an idea, you know, that God, when you say God, people assume something. If you were to say Allah, people would assume something else. If you say consciousness or you say ancestors, people think something else. I use all terms because I don't, I want to be open to the idea that I don't know what God is. Oh, but um, clearly there is a consciousness that has existed before all of us that gives us enlightenment, that teaches us, that shows us the way things work and the way things don't work. I think we can all, mm, maybe some of us all can ex- it can name times when we felt like we were in that flow and things made sense to us or we felt in communion with life around us, whether it's people or nature. And we've also, I think many of us have felt times when we're not. And the fact that we know that we're not, and we feel like, man, there's something out there and I'm disconnected from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. even that to me is evidence of a something that we don't know what it is. You know, the thing that was, that allowed me to let go of the God of evangelical Christianity not that it's bad. I just think it's limiting. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. The thing, the thing that allowed me to let go of that, I don't remember what I was going to say. Was it like a life experience go. thing or something? Um, you were talking about how you use all these different names because something is there and you don't want to relegate it to any one of those corners that the names kind of pull toward the thing that the thing that allowed you to drop the evangelical god it'll come to me i was so excited to hear it <laughs> it'll come to me it'll, it'll come to me and then the magic of editing the, the magic of ed- editing will bring it back and you know what maybe i'm not supposed to say it you know Ooh. one of the things oh one of the things that? honestly in prayer or meditation like part of my communion or conversation with the god being or the ancestors was a continual asking for right action and right thought and right words and something that I always asked for was to have my tongue held <laughs> when I when I need to not say something wow. like not only just have right words but like hold my tongue when I'm not supposed to say something and I don't know if it's true or not but the times that I lose my train of thought and I don't have words for it or like my mind goes blank like the ancestor said nah <laughs> you know dude <laughs> That that's hitting me so hard right now as not just a wise thing to pray, 
Like, like, what are you going to pray for? Are you hip to that Spillage Village record that Trey mentioned on his episode? I love Spillage Village. I could have, I was listening to that episode. I'm like, man, I could riff with Steve for like an hour on just your musical conversation. Like, I was in my car listening to that episode. My hands are up in the air right now. I was in the car listening to that episode when he was talking about the roots. And I'm like, wait, Steve Gould has never seen the roots? Oh, my God. I could talk about the roots all day. So um, Spillage Village is great. Oh, they're fantastic. It's the gist of that story. Sp- Spilligian is, is a rad record. Oh, man, See, now I lost my train of thought. Dang. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no, no. Okay. Uh, what I was going to say is that there's a track on there about prayer. And the guy's saying, I pray about money. Yeah, I pray about money. I pray about peace. Like he's like talking about what he prays about. Mm-hmm. Just listen to that track got me thinking about how human beings pray for stuff. And like the instinct is to pray for the self. Yeah. And then the, you know, the more elevated, higher minded prayers are like pray for others. <laughs> pray for world peace and stuff like that. But specifically you mentioning I often pray for restraint that the sovereign of the universe, whatever shape that being or entity has, that it would intervene on behalf of everyone else to stop me from saying some bullshit. Right, man. That's totally. That's not only deep wisdom, that's an absolute bullseye for embodying who I think you are. Mm -hmm. Like as a person and as a friend, like you're, of course you're praying to ask God to help you to not speak problems into the situation. Who was it in the Bible? Because this is where I got it from, honestly, when I was a little kid. Because my mom made us read the Bible a lot. Um, and you'll know this, but I can't remember who it was in the Bible that prayed for his portion, right? Just enough, oh, right? Oh, yeah, right. Just enough so that I will always be grateful, but not too much so that I'm, you know, I'm prideful. What was that guy's name? That was like a trendy was. thing in Christianity like 15 years yeah, yeah, ago. yeah. Yeah, Jabez. Is that Jabez? The prayer, that the of, prayer Jabez. of Jabez. That's it. You got it. Yeah, Jabez. Yeah. But I I read that before it was a thing. I was probably ten. Like I had a I had a concordance. I got a concordance for like my eighth Christmas. You know, like this is how I grew up listening to televangelists and doing Bible studies. So like I remember reading that and being like, wait a minute, there's a role for each of us. Like there's a lane, <laughs> you know, and I probably should stay in mine. I don't know where I got that from, you know, but that's where I started saying, because so many people that I went to church, we would always pray, like, give us the right words, give us the truth, give us, you know, and I'd be like, what if, what if you just need to literally shut the F up and sit down? Yeah. Because that is sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is nothing, (laughs) you know? Yes. But if left to our own devices, I know that I don't have the discernment strong enough to overpower my primitive mind when my primitive mind gets riled up and I want to start yelling at, at fools. Yeah. I don't know when to stop myself. I need the higher being. Right. I need divinity to intervene. That's really striking me right now, man. You've never told me that, that, that something you pray for is for God to close your mouth when you're about to share some nonsense. And honestly, to like bring it around, like that's what allowed me to have conversations with you about race and white supremacy, right? And just be like, maybe just let him say that. Maybe just let him say that one. Like you don't, you don't have to kick him in the balls every time, you know. Like just let him, let him, ex- let him express that. And that's what taught me to like maybe ask a question or, you know, share an experience without 
having to like ram something down someone's throat just like can i offer an idea or a question yeah or just the fact that i can be like not say anything and be like "Mm, okay that's cool you know and pick it up later when there's a better time you know and i don't know when that is either thank you for that thing thank you for that not only as a, a little nugget for you know the listeners like how about follow bj's example and we pray for the lord to shut our mouths Thank you also for your the way you embodied and enacted that principle toward me at a time when that's what I needed was somebody to intervene, uh, somebody to interject and correct my falsehoods, mm. correct my errors, show me how to hit the ball instead of just whiff all the time. And then also with patience, not kick me in the balls every time I whiff. <laughs> thank you for that, man. Thank you for thank you for this for coming coming on the show and doing the interview we, i know we've been talking about it for a few weeks i'm glad we made this happen this is so fun uh, sincere i know we're friends so i'd be like well of course i'm gonna be on the podcast but like seriously your podcast being a you know you talk about learning being you're a learner uh new experiences trying to dig deep in life the fact that you would invite me into this space like into your life period but like into this space is uh it's a great honor to me and i'm I hope I've said some things that are helpful to your listeners or at least have uh, people thinking thinking differently than they did an hour ago or so. You always speak words that are helpful to me. I have no doubt that it's helpful to others who will listen. Thanks for that, man. Cool. Appreciate you a huge deal. Love you deeply, BJ Hermiter. Love you too, Steve. Stephen P. Gould the <laughs> second. You the man. Misty just sneezed in the other room. I want to like... Hey, Misty. Hey, Misty. BJ wants to say hi to you. Oh, I have to pee. Oh, okay. She's peeing. Oh, no, enjoy that. Just do what you got to do. It's all good. Love you. Dude, uh, you saw on the lab yesterday, I like, yeah. d- drove all my stuff here, so now I just live here. Oh, that's awesome, hi. bro. Yo. Yo. The boys. I love, I love that you have a mask at the ready at home. <laughs> Just that's... I just walked in to my credit from the outside. No, no, no. No, no, no. You can pretend like you're not trying to act like you're taking it that seriously that you, you know, you mask up at home. I love that. That's so great. I just ate a chocolate cake with this on my wrist. A chocolate cake? I did. Did you get a flourless chocolate cake from somewhere? <clears throat> I got a gluten-free vegan chocolate cake. Yes. All right. Okay. That's the most How are you? thing I've ever said. I am well. I am great. well. How are you? How did I'm this go? I'm stoked to hear that. Oh, this was so I don't fun. know. This was so Was it good? Fun. Yes, it was so I, good, man. Come on. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm just I'm just talking, talking shit and whatever. I don't I don't know. Like, we didn't get to talk about any records, bro. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, we kind of did cuz you mentioned spillage and how you spillage. dig it. But we we didn't talk about records because we talked about the zone. We, we, we didn't like talk you about mentioned the zone. your dad we, giving we, you Coltrane. I mean, that's, that's going to cool. be All right. that's going to be that. Okay, I was I was like, do I need to make sure I sound cool musically? And you have a pro setup. Shit? Are you a podcast pro too? He's a pro. Uh, S- Steve told me that if I wanted to be on the podcast, I had to have a pro setup, <laughs> and so I saved, and I haven't bought groceries for a while. But the audio on this shit is how the fuck bang. did you get an SM7 at a time like this? Hey, They're hard to come by right we now. We can't find them. Are you serious? Yeah, they like uh, sold out. Amazon.com? Man, we were we were trying like 
Guitar Center because we wanted to have one like in hand. Yeah, yeah, and they're, yeah. yeah, they're, yeah. They're, guitar centers in LA are sold out of SM7s right now. No, you're you're not kidding. It wasn't super easy to find. I didn't want to buy it from Amazon, but it just happened to be the thing. And I'm pretty sure I paid too much for it, but that's okay. You have I wanted the thing to be cool. Everybody wants, so yeah. I wanted to be cool, and I wanted to be able to do podcasts for all the interviews that I do. And <laughs> uh, dude, it's working. Sure you look really, really setup. cool. You look really all right. cool. It's you working. look very cool. Tell your podcast friends this is the shit I do. <laughs> I can make this happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh Misty's screenshotting oh. you. All right, let me look cool. <laughs> Nailed it. This is great. <laughs> BJ Ermitter, public school employee, podcaster, all around dope, dope guy. So that's my friend BJ. Man, I love that guy. The screenshot Misty took is the photo that I used as the cover for this episode. I've known him for a long time. We've played a lot of music together, seen a lot of life experience. Obviously, we've spent a lot of time talking about things. But beyond that, like our youngest kids are pretty good friends. My daughter Susie and his son Jonathan would play video games on FaceTime together regularly. Like he mentioned in the interview, we didn't talk much about records, which is funny because... A lot of the time we spend together hanging out will be based around music. He used to come over to my apartment and we would watch like a U2 DVD or or a Keith Jarrett DVD or something. And then I'd go over to his apartment and we'd watch a Jay Dilla DVD. BJ has a pretty extensive encyclopedia of knowledge in his head about hip hop. For a while when I was trying to broaden my own knowledge of the genre, I was there was a period of time where I asked BJ for specific recommendations on what I should be listening to, and he mentioned The Roots, Jay Dilla, Most Def, Talib Kweli, Common, an artist named Rhapsody, Q-Tip, Lupe Fiasco, a guy named John Wayne, and the tracks that I've included so far in this episode are from artists like that. The first one you heard was Common on the Like Water for Chocolate album. The track at the end of the interview is from the Black Star record that Talib Kweli and Mostef made together. And the track you're hearing now is a single by John Wayne from 2016 called That's Okay. That's okay. My mind's blank anyway. I never have a thing to say. And if I do, I ain't telling you. I've been silent for a minute growing up with my nephews. I was an alcoholic quitting cold turkey in the cabin. Dave King once told me that the way to really understand music is to observe the artist in non-musical contexts because artists are usually themselves all the time. So if you want to understand why somebody plays the way they play, don't just transcribe their playing, watch them interact with their girlfriend or interact with their friends or watch them try to argue with their boss at the bar they work at or whatever because there's always a cultural backdrop behind art. I'm trying to broaden my perspective on cultural backdrop of hip-hop, and BJ's been a big source of that for me. I have a lot yet to learn about it, but as an art form, I enjoy it more and more every year. I put together a pretty lengthy hip-hop playlist 
on my Spotify page, which I'll link to on the Patreon site. And thanks for listening to another episode of the Steve Gould Show. heroes away from you really it's lonely but maybe I'm all I need you know me and my crew authors here in a silent way yeah in a silent way